Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. So I think the solution is qu quit doing that. Uh, Suzanne mentioned that uh, the so-called Bill Back Better bill <clears throat> went down in December. That's good news. If you're digging a hole, quit digging is the first step. There's some indication that Senator Manchin may be flirting with another version of it. I hope not. We're doing everything to discourage him from that. I don't think this red-hot economy needs any more stimulation. So I think we need to quit doing what we're doing. And um, also, I think our priorities need to be different. I mean. I've known Joe Biden for a long time. We did deals together during the during the Obama years. He, he was, honestly, he was never a moderate. And even though he ran as a moderate, which gave him a lane to run in, if you were running against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, maybe you should call yourself a moderate. But he didn't have any trouble signing up with their whole agenda. And uh, fortunately, we've had full display here for a little over a year of hard left policies and what they produce for our country. And the answer is, this is not the direction in which to go. I want to talk about some of those policy debates in a moment, but I did want to ask you about your relationship with the president. Uh, you mentioned you've had a long history with him in the Senate when he was vice president. Um, a flashpoint in your relationship, though, was in January when the president gave a speech about their preferred voting regulations, and he said any Republican who opposes him is uh, compared to racists or segregationists. You went to the Senate floor and said, quote, the president was abandoning rational persuasion for pure demagoguery, and you did not recognize the man at the podium. You said his speech was incoherent, incorrect, and beneath the office. In February, President Biden came back, perhaps feeling a little sheepish, and said, you two really are friends. And he said, Mitch McConnell, as a man of your word, you're a man of honor. I was wondering where your relationship with the president stands today and how often you communicate with him. Well, our personal relationship is just fine. Um, but we haven't had a whole lot to talk about because of the path he's chosen, uh, which leads me to say that if I'm the majority next year, Biden will be a moderate. He won't have any choice and we can help him keep the commitment he originally uh, made. There have been occasions, I mean, Suzanne mentioned the infrastructure bill. I played a major role in making that bipartisan and helping it get through the, the Congress. I'm not opposed to doing business with the president anytime he wants to operate in the middle, but there have been darn few examples of that. We had one other proposal I thought was worth passing postal reform, sort of in the political center. You know, think about it, a football field, <clears throat> and the American public is given a closely divided Congress. I think the message is, see what you can accomplish between the 40-yard lines, things you can actually agree on that are worth doing, maybe not earth-shaking, but worth doing, but, but you shouldn't be able to run the ball all the way way in the end zone on the other side when, you, when it's pretty close. They looked at a 50-50 Senate, a couple of seat majority in the House, and declared they had a mandate for Bernie Sanders' vision of America. I don't think so. And that's why they've stalled out, and I think that's why they're unpopular. Your relationship with the president will be even more intriguing should the pundits be right and Republicans win the midterm elections and take over the Senate, making you majority leader, I assume, we can confirm you're running for majority leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the areas where you'll have a lot of interaction with the White House is on personnel. Suzanne spoke about some of the nominees that have come forward who were pretty radical from the Biden administration. Was curious to know your thoughts on, in the last two years of a Biden term, if Republicans are in control of the Senate, how that personnel process is going to look. Very differently. Um, with all due respect to our friends in the House, the reason I've always felt the Senate was actually more important, which offends them, I think, 
uh, is we're in the personnel business. There are over 1,300 appointments that the, the president makes that come to the Senate for confirmation. Some of them are hugely important, like a Supreme Court justice. And the majority leader has the ability to decide what you're going to put on the floor. Some of you may recall uh, the single most important decision I made during my time as majority leader. By the way, I've been both. Majority leader is better. <laughs> it was a decision not to fill the Supreme Court vacancy during the 2016 election. And not only as a result of determining what we put on the floor and the order of doing things, we were able to get three new Supreme Court justices and 54 new circuit court judges who believe in the quaint notion that maybe a judge ought to follow the law. That can end up, even though litigation is not a cheap way to get an outcome, but that can end up being a way where many of the regulations that many of you are affected by can finally be looked at objectively by a lot of men and women who are very skeptical of what lawyers call the administrative state. That is, agencies basically being able to do anything. So I think involvement in the personnel process, the last two years divide administration, would eliminate the appointment of an awful lot of extremely radical people who've been on virtually appointed to virtually every agency, and Suzanne mentioned many of them, who are basically not capitalists. Some of them admitting they're not capitalists. And um, so I think we, we, as I said earlier, I think we turned the president into a moderate the last two years, and personnel is so important in that process. Let me stick with the personnel business and return to the Supreme Court, which you mentioned. Last week, the Senate confirmed Judge Jackson to replace Justice Breyer. A couple of questions for you on this. Number one, why did you vote against her? She, she was extremely well qualified. Um, but I think that the Democrats are, are consumed with race and gender when it comes to looking at uh, judicial appointments. We're more interested in what kind of a judge. How do you look at it? And the um, Justice Scalia, who in my view was right up there with John Marshall, the first chief, or nearly the first chief justice, is the consequential in the history of the Supreme Court, sort of reintroduced us to what the founders thought the judiciary would be. Now, why were they given lifetime appointments? To prevent them from becoming entangled in the political wars between the executive branch and the legislative branch to the maximum extent possible. And Scalia reminded everybody that the job of judge is to make your very best effort to interpret the law and the Constitution as it's written, as it's written. Democrats prefer appointments to the courts who are what we typically refer to as judicial activists, who look at the judiciary as kind of another way to legislate. And um, now Justice Jackson is a, right out of the playbook of judicial activism. That's why most of my members voted against her, not because she wasn't well qualified. She is. She's extremely well qualified. But I think she's going to be in, uh, in sort of the left wing of the Supreme Court. She has a history of inserting sort of her personal opinion and interpreting uh, the laws in, in ways that we didn't feel were appropriate. And my main beef with her was she wouldn't protect the court itself. Uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, you'd be hard to find more liberal justices than they. They came out publicly against court packing. That is increasing the number of Supreme Court justices to try to rig the system and to get outcomes that, that you want. They both publicly came out against it. You couldn't find two more Supreme Court liberal justices than those two. I tried to get Justice, now Justice Jackson, to defend the court against court packing. She wouldn't do it. So that was enough for me. <laughs> and uh, most of my members, I think, felt she was 
well qualified, but I'd say the president will not be disappointed in this judge. I think she'll be exactly what he, what he wanted. The last several confirmation votes for the Supreme Court have been pretty narrow uh, wins for uh, the judge being confirmed. Do you think we can return to a moment where we see wider confirmation votes for Supreme Court justices? And are you concerned that these sort of partisan split decisions are harming the court's legitimacy in the eyes of the American people? Well, I, I, I don't know how to prevent it because we have two different views of what a court, uh, what a Supreme Court justice uh, ought to be. Um, but in defense of the way Republicans have handled it, uh, we were not the ones who beat up Robert Bork, who beat up Clarence Thomas, or who beat up Brett Kavanaugh. There hadn't been a single uh, presidential nominee to the Supreme Court by a Democratic president who's been treated the way those three were. Um, so I think if you look back over the entire history of the country, we've gone through several different periods of the Senate deciding what advice and consent means. That's the language in the Constitution, advice and consent. What does it mean? I think the answer is it means whatever the majority of the Senate thinks it means at any given time. There have been periods in American history where <clears throat> Supreme Court nominees are just basically waved through, uh, in some instances, even without a hearing. Then you've had knockdown, drag out fights. So what can you say about the Senate today, which is your question? I think you can say the Senate today is in a period of assertiveness. In other words, the Senate today, whether they're in majority or we're in the majority, view our role as a co-partner, a co-partner, not a subservient role, but a co-partner with the president. He obviously has the advantage in being able to make the nomination, but I think the Senate is in an assertive period, and I wouldn't predict it's going to end anytime soon. You work with President Trump, of course, to put three justices on the court. Um, you're a student of the court. Have they worked out the way that you think the Republicans would have hoped? Have they issued decisions that you think are consistent with the philosophy that they uh, said they uh, subscribed to during their confirmation hearings? So, so far, I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, happy with all of the Republican nominees' uh, appointments to the Supreme Court, and there are now six of them, if you, if you take into account Roberts, Alito, and Thomas, and um, it, which doesn't mean that on a substantive basis, you get the outcome. Uh, Scalia used to say, you're not a very good judge if you're not unhappy occasionally with the outcome you reach because it's not your opinion. It's, you know, what the law dictates. And I, I think all six of them make their best effort to interpret the law as it was written, as opposed to kind of making it up on the fly and deciding what outcome do I want personally. You mentioned Justice Thomas. I want to ask one more question about the court. There have been furious attacks on Clarence Thomas in the news lately from the left. Uh, calls for him to recuse himself from certain cases, calls for him to resign. Some people have said he should be impeached. was wondering what you think about these attacks on Clarence Thomas and generally the ethics of the court and how they sort of police themselves. Well, recusal is a big decision. If you're on the Supreme Court and you recuse yourself from a case, you set up the possibility of a 4-4 tie. So I'm comfortable with, this, with the decisions any one of the nine of them might make <clears throat> to recuse themselves in a case. Um, I think they're all honorable people. I think they understand a conflict when they see it. And um, I have confidence in Justice Thomas and the other eight justices to make the decision on whether to recuse. I want to move uh, back home to Kentucky on a matter and talk a bit about the December tornadoes. Uh, you and I toured some tornado damage in my hometown of Dawson Springs. It was uh, tough to see. Western Kentucky devastated the way it was. I know you've, you've been down a few times. Was wondering if you might reflect for the crowd on the devastation you saw and talk a little bit about whether you think the rebuilding effort is proceeding 
as you would like, and maybe even just brief us a little bit on your efforts and the relief to get Western Kentucky back on its feet. Yeah, as you indicated, I saw you and your dad there within <clears throat> within the week of the tornado that hit Dawson Springs and, and Mayfield, and Bowling Green, and actually hit uh, Caldwell County as well. Um, I went down there uh, a couple months ago again. I'm going again later th this week to Bowling Green and to Mayfield. So where are we? Uh, I think the, the, the problem with many of these recovery programs is after 30 days, the match goes down. In other words, the federal government provides less and you have to provide more. That clearly wasn't going to work with the worst tornadoes we've had in our history. So I put in the, in the last omnibus appropriation bill a change to take care of it by making it 90-10 instead of 75-25, um, which I think will make it more possible for us to pull together the resources to get them out of the devastating position they're in. And I want to thank a lot of you in the room because a lot of money has been contributed by companies and individuals uh, to, to these local uh, communities who are having to come up with a match, even if it's a smaller match now. Uh, so I think, I think we're okay so far, but this is going to be a long haul, both in Dawson Springs and Mayfield, where, I mean, you can hardly recognize either one of them. I want to talk about foreign affairs today. Obviously, we all watch in horror the news in Ukraine every day. It seems like the Russians find a new and creative way to murder the Ukrainians. It's horrific every single day. Vladimir Putin today is saying he is justifying his invasion because his main goal is to help people. He says we were forced to do it. How do you think this is going to end? And in your opinion, has the United States done enough to help the Ukrainians defeat the Russians? Well, I want to start with the late Madeleine Albright, who uh, was Bill Clinton's second Secretary of State, who passed away recently, but did say publicly she owed Mitt Romney an apology when Mitt Romney said in 2012 the Russians were our biggest adversary. He was right then, and we're right now. Um, I think the last two administrations uh, did not look at the Russians in a realistic way, either the last president or the previous president, and assumed they had changed their stripes. Uh, I think the Russians are indistinguishable under this leadership, and they were when they call themselves the Soviets, or when they call themselves the Tsars. And um, a clear-headed, um, we've all kind of been reintroduced to the fact that there's evil in the world, and which leads me to NATO. NATO is the most successful military alliance in world history. Margaret Thatcher famously said the reason for NATO was to keep the Russians out the Americans in, and the Germans down. <laughs> and um, what Vladimir Putin has managed to do is to make NATO more unified than it's been since its beginning. And there are a couple of countries in Europe that don't belong to NATO, Sweden and Finland don't, <clears throat> that may well be signing up because they realize the, the threat. So the good news out of this is the, the, the Germans, I think, are becoming less, more skeptical about their relationship with the Russians, which has been, in my view, totally unhealthy for a long time. And um, it's going to take the Germans <clears throat> a while to wean themselves away from total dependency. And a lot of the other European countries are way too dependent on the Russians. Now, with regard to Ukraine, <clears throat> what an inspiration President Zelensky is and the, the Ukrainian people are. And um, 
my attitude about this from the very beginning is our goal ought to be to win, to win. And I think <clears throat> the administration has been reluctant to say the goal is to win. Secretary Austin was before the Armed Services Committee last week. <clears throat> <clears throat> my colleague Tom Cotton tried to get him to say the goal was to win, and he just couldn't say it. So I think the definition of winning is whatever Zelensky says it is. In other words, as long as they want to fight, we ought to give them everything we possibly can to help them win the fight. A decision to uh, sue for peace or to give up part of the country or anything else is not us, up to us. I think we ought to give them everything they've got, everything they need for as long as they need it, as rapidly as possible. I think the administration is getting better, but I'd like the Ukrainians to understand fully that we're in this to help them win. They deserve to win. Now, impact on China, I hope President Xi is watching this and uh, seeing that uh, in this particular uh, era of, of world history, invading another country, even if you claim it's part of your country, like Taiwan, <clears throat> is not something you can do with no consequences, with no one else paying attention. Um, and I was just reading yesterday that uh, the Japanese, one of the ways the Japanese are similar to the Germans after the end of World War II is because of their own behavior during World War II, have gone totally in the other direction in terms of doing anything other than having just the bare minimum ability to defend yourself, reluctant to ever give weapons to another country or to help in any way get involved in another. I think the Japanese are rethinking <clears throat> how passive they've been because they're watching the Chinese. The, they're watching what the Russians did. <clears throat> the, um, the Germans, I think, at least are saying they want to increase their defense budget. You don't usually hear that out of the Germans. <clears throat> They've actually transferred military weapons to the Ukrainians. That's something <laughs> no other German government would have done. And the reason it's so significant is the current chancellor of Germany is a social democrat, which is kind of their left party, and that has been the most pro-Russian. So uh, <clears throat> two things, hopefully. Ukraine wins, definition of victory, whatever Zelensky says is victory. And number two, a good object lesson for President Xi and any other people around the world who may think invading and taking over a neighboring country is a piece of cake. Let me ask you that about President Biden's performance. Um, public opinion polls don't give him a high rating on handling of this Ukrainian matter at the moment. Um, he's dealing, I think, with dual impulses from the American people. <clears throat> They want to help the Ukrainians. They don't want American soldiers in harm's way. How would you rate Biden's handling of this so far? And what would you have done differently than he has done? Well, I think all of this started with the incompetent and uh, ill-advised withdrawal from Afghanistan in August, which became kind of a metaphor for incompetence. Uh, in, in my view, we shouldn't have been leaving Afghanistan in the first place. Uh, and the reason I say that, we were not involved in combat there anymore. We'd not been involved in combat in six years over there. We'd not losing any people. But we were keeping the Taliban out. And that was why we went there in the first place 21 years ago. So I thought it was a success. But it, it was a, a very visible indication America's kind of coming home. Bad decision number two, try to reconstitute the Iranian nuclear deal. So one of the things the, the previous administration did well, improved our relations with our Saudi uh, Arab allies and Israel. And the reason for that was they're so skeptical of Iran because Iran creates so many problems for them. So now we've got the Israelis and the and the Sunni Arab states that are traditionally friendly with us, skeptical about our ability to stand with them because of this 
cozying up to the Iranians again. So it's, it's hard for me. I, 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 Bob Gates may have said it right in his memoirs that he couldn't think of a single foreign policy issue that Joe Biden had gotten right in his entire career. I think I agree with that. I'm going to ask one more thing about Ukraine, just to take us back through, a, I think, a consequential decision that you made. Obviously, the focus is on Biden's handling, but what Biden had requested from the Congress regarding military aid, you found insufficient. And I was wondering if you might take us through the phone call you made to Chuck Schumer to get more. Yeah, well, I, I doubled it <laughs> because I thought they needed more. And frankly, at the rate we're shipping them uh, weapons and ammunition, we may need to do another supplemental. And it's not just for the Ukrainians, because when we ask the uh, frontline NATO countries to transfer s weapons, they need to be backfilled as well. So one of the things we had in the, in the Ukraine bill was loan guarantees so that, say, Poland, if they transfer certain weapons to the Ukrainians, can get new and more modern weapons from us with loan guarantees to back them up. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I think this is critically important that we win, that the Russians be defeated, that we do everything we can to punish them both on the economic side and the military side. That does not involve, no one is suggesting we put American troops on the other side of the NATO line, but there are a whole lot of things we can do and are doing and need to continue to do to make this turn out well. Does that punishment include removing them from the United Nations Security Council? I don't think there's any way to accomplish that. Let's talk about energy. Energy experts are warning us that the Biden administration's goal of a carbon-free electric sector by 2035 could damage uh, or threaten the electric grid reliability and requires technology that's not available. We've seen grid failures in Texas, brownouts in California, energy prices, as everyone in this room knows, are up. Federal policies have caused more coal fuel power plants to be decommissioned ahead of schedule. And now the Russian invasion of Ukraine has exposed that we're no longer energy independent in the United States. I was curious your views on our national energy strategy. Are these policies uh, too late to be reversed as it relates to um, reliable and affordable energy for the country? Well, your question suggests my response. <laughs> I, I, I think this administration, um, climate goals are completely imp impractical and unrealistic. And the way they've adjusted to the Ukraine war is to suggest everybody else produce more except us as if somehow we're going to be a patch of green in the middle of this worldwide effort to produce more. In 2019, we were exporting energy, both oil and natural gas. We have the ability to not only meet our own demands, but to help the Europeans begin to wean themselves off of their excessive dependence, about 40% of, uh, I, I believe, both oil and gas in, in most of Europe come from Russians. We've got to fix that problem, and that requires more production, not less. <clears throat> I also think we're going to continue to make strides on uh, climate, but through technology, not through clamping down on production. We have to have a practical approach to moving in that direction, and their goals are completely unrealistic and unattainable. Let me uh, talk about the infrastructure bill. I know it's been mentioned from the podium. Um, you told me once that you subscribed to the Henry Clay philosophy on federal government's role in infrastructure. I was wondering if you could just take us back through the vote you cast and also the strategy behind splitting the infrastructure bill, which passed, from the rest of Biden's spending agenda, which has not passed. First, a little history footnote, since Scott brought it up. The great debate between Henry Glay and Andrew Jackson 
during that era was over whether or not the federal government had a responsibility for what they called internal improvements. Henry Clay was frustrated by Andrew Jackson on almost every occasion. One time he ran against him directly and got clobbered. But he won on this. And so the whole issue of whether or not the federal government ought to be involved in infrastructure was settled before the Civil War. And it still is. So fast forwarding to the present. The initial Build Back Better bill, the one they rec recommended in early 2021, right after the president came in, it was something like $6 trillion. Buried in the $6 trillion was a worthwhile, I thought, bipartisan effort, potentially bipartisan effort, to build what we think of as infrastructure, roads, bridges, broadband. Um, so I encouraged a group in the Senate that seemed to be coming together to um, try to see if they could come up with an infrastructure only, carving that out of this massive thing that was originally suggested. I thought it served two purposes. Number one, it was the most popular part of the larger bill. Number two, if Biden ever wanted to really do anything on a bipartisan basis, this was a good potential example of what could be done. Incredibly enough, Barbara Boxer and I had done the last transportation bill together in 2015. I never agreed with Barbara Boxer on anything. So I mean, that, that's a good example of and, and third, it was worth doing. It was important. It needed to happen. So, But conservatives were initially skeptical of this. Did it cause you to hesitate? Well, I didn't hesitate, but our former president apparently did not want um, anything like that to happen during his successor's administration. So he came out against it, um, which I think reduced the number of votes in the House. But um, in, in any event, it ended up passing this the Senate in spite of that. And the main thing was it was a good thing to do. I've never felt that if you don't have the White House, you should do nothing. If you don't have the White House, see if you can find something you agree with and do that and don't do the other stuff. And so this was an example of something I thought was meritorious, had bipartisan support and ought to be done no matter who was in the White House or no matter who got credit for signing it. Just to follow up on the Build Back Better, I know it's been mentioned a couple of times. I know they're talking to Joe Manchin about revival. Gut instinct right now. Is this dead or trying to dig out of its... Uh, you guys remember the old movie, uh, Fatal Attraction? <laughs> Build Back Better reminds me of Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. Every time I think... Every time I think it's gone, it kind of keeps bouncing back. So <laughs> I don't know if it's in the bathtub yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I I was not uh, excited about Joe Manchin's uh, suggestion that maybe we ought to start talking about this again. Uh, I'm particularly not excited about it because the ver to give you an idea that the size of these bills they're suggesting. This is a proposed mini version of BBB, and it's half a trillion dollars. So this is still not chump change. And um, Manchin has made it clear that he would like, uh, you'll be thrilled with this, Suzanne, that he would like to revisit the 2017 tax bill. How exciting would that be for all of you? Um, so I don't know whether it's dead or not, but I'm, I'd uh, like to smother it if I knew how to do it. And uh, <laughs> the only way they could pass this for all of you, they'd have to have every single Democrat to pass it because it's a 50-50 Senate. And this is, could be done 50-50 because it's what we call the reconciliation process, which is not subject to the filibuster and therefore can be done with 50 votes. That's how they did the rescue plan last year. 
So it'll depend on um, Manchin and Cinema once again. Cinema uh, is unenthusiastic about tax hikes, so hopefully that will be enough to keep this thing underwater permanently. Another issue that I think is uh, plaguing the country right now is immigration, and I think it's emerging as a big issue in the midterm. Um, I think most people agree there's a genuine crisis at the southern border. It's getting worse every month. was curious about your reaction to the Biden administration's announcement that it would end the Title 42 restrictions at the border. Insane. I mean, um, the, 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 this Title 42 allows you to continue to discourage entry based upon COVID. And um, on the one hand, they're asking us for $10 billion to deal with, uh, with, a, with a new round of COVID heading our way, uh, which we're open to, provided we can pay for it by repurposing some of this $2 trillion they authorized last year that's still not spent. And um, at the same time, taking a different view with regard to the border. So it produced a bipartisan explosion. I mean, there were at least six or seven Democrats who said, this is completely unacceptable. And um, I think they'll have to back down, but they haven't yet. And it's, the border is a mess already. This, and everybody looking at this said it would just be a completely unsustainable meltdown on top of the problem that we already have. One thing the previous administration did really well was to get control of the border. They did a good job on getting control of the border. The Remain in Mexico policy, which this administration uh, eliminated, I think almost on day one, was a big step in the direction of opening it up again. Let's move to crime, another quality of life issue. Louisville has seen huge increases in violent crimes. Uh, Craig Greenberg, candidate for mayor here, was nearly assassinated in his office. I'm wondering what you think of the, having been a former county judge here and lifelong uh, leader in this community, what do you think of the crime wave here? What do you think of the crime increase nationally? And as a political matter, do you believe Joe Biden when he says he's trying to distance himself from the defund, the police rhetoric that's gripped a lot of his party? I'm sure he is trying to get rid of that because that's nonsense. And um, that's been on, that was on full display during the year of the, of the pandemic. We all saw it across the country, including right here. And it makes no sense at all. Um, I think there's some people who, who think there's just simply no way to control crime waves. But I would mention two New York mayors in a row who turned it into a safe city. Rudy Giuliani and then Mike Bloomberg in a row. Um, so I think it depends on who the mayor is. And we're going to have a mayor's election here this year. I hope whoever emerges from that will understand that the police need to be supported financially uh, and in terms of the feeling that uh, the elected officials have their back. Um, it's hard work to be a police officer. And if you think every time you bust up a fight, you're, you know, you're subject to litigation, you go, it's a morale problem. And I assume a lot of people in the room are having people, having difficulty getting people to come back to work. Well, that's affecting police departments too. And morale is part of it. So I think the only way to, this is something that won't happen at the federal level, but in the various communities around the country, is um, to support the police, exactly the opposite of defunding the police. Let's talk about the midterm elections. Seems like the environment is pretty good for your party. The generic ballot favors the Republicans, which is an almost unheard of condition in the national polling, highly unusual. Feels like the House 
which is already close as a mortal lock for the Republicans. But the Senate may be a different animal. So first to you, your prediction on the Senate. Will you be the majority leader come January? And can you walk us through the map as you see it? Yeah, well, I don't know yet, but I'll, I'll say this with regard to the atmosphere. <clears throat> having, having been around a while, uh, I can remember good years and bad years for us. The best year we had was 1994. We got the House back after 40 years and, and took the Senate as well. And this atmosphere for Republicans is better than it was in 1994. So from an atmospheric point of view, uh, it's a perfect storm of problems for the Democrats because it's an entirely Democratic government, a Democratic president, a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate. Which leads you to ask the question, how could you screw this up? It's actually possible. <laughs> and we've had some experience with that in the past. <laughs> in the Senate, if you look at where we have to compete in order to get into a majority, there are places that are competitive in the general election. So you can't nominate somebody who's just sort of unacceptable to a broader group of people and win. And we had that experience in 2010 and 2012 by nominating people, none of you will remember any of these people because they're not in the Senate. <laughs> Christine O'Donnell, Sharon Angle, Richard Murdoch over here in Indiana, Todd Aiken in Missouri. Just kind of bizarre people that got through the primary who couldn't, couldn't win in November. So we need to make sure that doesn't happen and the primary season's about to start. Lots of primaries in May and June. Uh, so far I'm optimistic that in the places that are going to determine who the next majority leader is. We're going to have fully electable nominees, but that will be decided in Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Ohio, Missouri, Nevada, and Arizona. And every one of those we're watching um, who may be nominated and um, having a fully electable nominee is critical for the Senate. The House has an awful lot of uncompetitive districts where if you just win the primary, it's over. In fact, I don't know how many congressional seats left in America are terribly competitive in November. We're very different. The places that are going to determine who gets to 51, and 51 is the magic number because the majority leader gets to decide what you're going to do. Give you an example we were just talking about last year. If we'd won one seat in Georgia and I'd still been the majority leader last year, we wouldn't have dumped two trillion dollars on the economy, and you wouldn't be looking at 40-year inflation. So, 51 is the magic number because it enables the majority leader to, to determine the agenda. And frequently, the most important thing you do is what you choose not to do. I want to ask you one more question before we go to the famous lightning round. Uh, this is an issue I think that's top of mind for, for pro-business organizations, and it's the idea that there's a strain of anti-corporate or anti-business populism running through the Republican Party. You've even had some harsh words for some large corporations that have waded into some divisive cultural issues. The Georgia election bill issue comes to mind last year. I was wondering, what do you make of the Republican Party, in some cases, pulling away from some business interests? And how do you see this unfolding? And it's been suggested that perhaps the business community is a little politically homeless right now. Do you agree with that? I was wondering your uh, thoughts on this matter. Well, let me rephrase the question. <clears throat> what, what I objected to was uh, corporations themselves, some of the big corporations themselves, forgetting what their mission is. Sell products and improve stock and uh, tend to issues that are related to, to, to doing business successfully. Uh, what I objected to was a bunch of companies not having read the bills, jumping in the middle of the Georgia 
state election uh, issue, um, which I thought was frankly ignorant because they <laughs> didn't read the bills, signed up with a bunch of uh, lefties who were trying to take political advantage of the situation. And um, so I did speak out against that. With regard to Republican attitude towards corporations, I, I think most Republicans still view themselves as the, as the pro-business party. Um, some of the rhetoric in the previous administration coming out of the White House about trade, I think, was, even though they did do USMCA, was questionable. I still think uh, international trade is a winner for America. I ran into the trade representative in this administration recently and I asked her if she had anything to do because this administration is so signed up with, with organized labor, I don't hear much talk unless you do, Suzanne, about doing trade deals anywhere. And by the way, in order to do trade deals, you need to have what's called trade promotion authority, which is an authority, a powerful authority given to the president to negotiate a trade agreement that then comes to the Congress and is voted on with a simple majority without amendment. The last time trade promotion authority was passed, I signed up with Barack Obama over the objection of both Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid to give him trade promotion authority. So I think there are a lot more pro-trade, pro-business people in my party than in the other one. And you'd have a hard time finding pro-business Democrats right now with a flashlight. All right, here comes the lightning round. Short answer, your favorite. And with apologies to the National College Basketball Player of the Year. Number one, will the University of Louisville football and basketball teams have winning records in the upcoming season? <laughs> um, I think yes. You're only asking about a winning record. You're not talking about championships. <laughs> All right, number two. You By host the way, the new basketball coach at, at UofL is a star, an absolute star. Yeah. He, right. he actually called me up this week. We had a great 20-minute talk, and we talked about a little bit of everything, um, not just basketball, but life in general. And uh, so I think there's uh, light at the end of the tunnel for UofL. <laughs> Yesterday, you hosted Senator Amy Klobuchar at the McConnell Center, one of the latest in the Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, as a graduate of the program, was curious to know, you've had so many great guests over the years. Who's been your favorite speaker that you've been able to bring in? Oh, my gosh. Well, Clarence Thomas was there, and so was Hillary Clinton, and so was Joe Biden. We've had a lot of great speakers, and I've enjoyed them all. Major League Baseball's instituted designated hitter in the National League. Do you support or oppose the DH? I'm in favor of the DH. Sorry to Joe Arnold, by the way, out here, who's the number one anti-DH guy in this crowd. Do you think enough is being done to hold people accountable for the riot at the Capitol on January 6th? I think we don't know yet. But I think everyone uh, who had complicity in that uh, and can be proven should get the maximum sentence. Aside from Secretary Chow, who is the one person you will always pick up the phone when they call? Ah, <laughs> uh, George Will. Vice President Pence today is speaking at the University of Virginia. I don't know if you followed this, but some of the students there are protesting that he shouldn't be allowed on campus, that his speech should be considered violence. You've been a stalwart defender of free speech during your career. I was wondering about whether you're concerned about the climate for free speech in America, specifically on college campuses. I am. I, I, you know, America has had challenges over the years, and we always work our way through them, and things get better. But, but it seems to me this is uniquely un-American, that I don't want to get exposed to an opinion I don't already agree with. I don't want to 
hear something I might disagree with because it might upset me. What utter nonsense. I mean, America, at its very inception and at every interval along the way, has been engaged in robust debate over everything. I mean, it's, it's been um, the hallmark of Americanism. And to see this promoted, apparently, by a lot of faculty and, co and students, I don't know, in some of these universities, who's worse, the faculty or the students, that they certainly wouldn't want to be exposed to an opinion they didn't agree with. That is nonsense, and it's so indefensible. Hopefully, this this phase will blow over out of just stupidity. Let me throw out a few names: Grim Reaper, Cocaine Mitch, Darth Vader, Midnight Mitch, Evil Genius of the Senate, Apex Predator of the Senate, Old Crow. These are the nicknames. Various people. Which one do I like the most? I want to know, when you look in the mirror, which one do you see? My favorite is Old Crow. <laughs> and some of you may not have heard that my latest nickname is Old Crow. It's given to me by the former president, who's apparently not a fan. <laughs> And my response was, I want to thank him because this was Henry Clay's favorite bourbon. <laughs> All right, two more and we'll wrap it up. Uh, Michael Tackett of the Associated Press is apparently writing the definitive book about your life and career. Uh, do you expect this book to contain never before reported details from your life and time in the Senate? I would think so, yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I told him he wouldn't have any trouble finding my enemies. But, uh, <laughs> I hope to have an opportunity to refer him to some people who might have a contrary view. And uh, <laughs> we'll see how it, how it turns out. All right, final question. You uh, have been chosen, along with one other person, by NASA for a special mission to go to the moon. <laughs> you get to pick the person from the following list. <laughs> Chuck Schumer, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or a random person from the San Francisco phone book. Who are you taking to the moon? The San Francisco phone book. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mitch McConnell. <laughs>《Flyover Country》with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to *Flyover Country* on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm -hmm.